Well, let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 16. They were clearing up after a service in a church somewhere in the north of Scotland, and they discovered some bits of paper lying around, maybe the kind of paper they find after you've been in church. Uh, Apparently, the sermon had been very boring, and we will test this. We will road test this afterwards. Uh, The person had been scribbling, drawing pictures. But the sermon had obviously been so boring that they had reverted from drawing pictures to verse. And the verse went something like this. To live above with saints in love, oh, that would be glory. To live below with saints I know, well, that's a different story. Well, that uh, comes to mind, really, as we come to look at a, a little section of uh, the book of Acts this evening. What I'm doing before we get into the passage we read is I'm going to fi- wind up what, what chapter we find at the end of chapter 15. I think one of the greatest arguments for the honesty and transparency and historical reliability of the Bible is the way in which it handles its heroes. It steadfastly refuses to whitewash their characters, airbrush their flaws, ignore their faults, or excuse their sins. This is because actually none of the main characters in the story are in fact the hero of the story. No matter how influential, for example, the apostles Peter and Paul are, or prophets like Samuel and Moses might be, or kings like Hezekiah or David might become, the reality is that in the Bible there is only one hero, and that hero is the risen and living Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, I want you to glance for a moment backwards in your Bible to the end of chapter 15, and to see that in this section, the bit we didn't read and the bit we did read, A number of unexpected things occur in the narrative that I want to draw to your attention. First of all, there's an unexpected argument. Look at the end of chapter 15. You remember the background of chapter 15 is that there's been this great unifying assembly of the church. There's been this great effort to bring together the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians and to reconcile them in the gospel. The way they've done that is to focus on the issue of salvation. That salvation is faith in Jesus plus nothing. Faith in Jesus plus nothing, not faith in Jesus plus circumcision, brings salvation. And this is a message that Paul and Barnabas have brought to the church in Antioch and are now going to take round the other churches with which they have a relationship. So we read it in verse uh, 36 of chapter 15, some days, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Here is the issue. Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take Mark with them, to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now, in the early church, gospel advances, gospel advances, and the church 
grows through the name of Jesus, not in the name of the apostles. They're his instrument, but they're not the name in which the church grows. In fact, these men, these men like Barnabas and Paul and Peter and so on, would have been the last people in the world to think that we would ever elevate them as heroes in the church. So the end of chapter 15, as I've said, so much has been achieved. The antagonism between Jewish and Gentile Christians has been diffused. And yet here there erupts in the middle of this, this disagreement among these two leading lights in the church, Barnabas and Paul. And as you notice, it begins with this mutual decision. They agree that they will go and visit where they previously worked. Barnabas wants to take Mark, John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark, Mark who had been with them, and Mark who had abandoned them after a short time. And Paul's reaction is instant and negative and decisive. He says, one who has withdrawn from us and has not gone with us in the work. That word to withdraw there is a word that's usually used in the New Testament for to apostatize, one who has actually abandoned the faith. He's turned away from the faith. Somehow or other, Mark lost confidence in the gospel, and that led him to turn back and to go home. And presumably, he has come back. He, he fell, and he rose, and he's come back to the Lord, and Barnabas wants to bring him with him, obviously, to be an encouragement to him, and so on. That's the kind of man Barnabas is. He's an encourager. I've known people like Barnabas. I don't think I'm one myself, but Barnabas is a great encourager. He's a good man to have on a team. He's a good man to have around us in church. And invariably, Barnab Barnabai, if I can use the plural, <laughs> which I just invented for the occasion, uh, Barnabai are, are, are really very nice and loving people, but they're not really sharp when it comes to theological things. Paul is sharp when it comes to theological things, but he's not necessarily a kind of touchy-feely, lovey person. He's not the kind of person you necessarily want to share uh, a car trip or a road trip with. But, but anyway, Barnabas and Paul have this, have this division. Barnabas wants to take the risk. Paul thinks it's too early to take him with them. Now, I want you to notice that Luke doesn't say anything about either of these men. He doesn't suggest... Either way, which one was right and which one was wrong, there's no doubt that Barnabas was right at this level, that Barnabas does go off with Mark, and we know that Barnabas is successful in mentoring Mark. Goes to Cyprus. The two of them go off to Cyprus. I don't know if you've been to Cyprus. I, I've known people who've been there, and apparently that's not a bad place to be mentored. And Mark and Barnabas were there, and, and there wasn't a lot of persecution there, and Mark grew, and later on in the story, we find Paul actually sending greetings to Mark uh, and bringing Mark on board. For example, in Colossians, we're told that Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, when he comes, I want you to welcome him, Paul says to these people in Colossae. Or, or, or later in 2 Timothy, right at the very end of his ministry, uh, he, Paul, in prison, refers to Mark. He says to the person he's writing the letter to, get Mark, Timothy. Bring him with you because he is very useful to me for ministry. And when he's writing a letter to Philemon, Paul says about uh, those who are with him, 
Aristarchus and Luke, my fellow worker, and Mark send their greetings. So Mark was going to grow. Mark was going to become a friend of Paul long term. But at this moment, this moment, Paul feels it's not the right time. So was Paul right? Or was Barnabas right? Was Paul right to think perhaps the dangers and pressures on the road would have turned them aside or was Barnabas right to think that being with them, it would have been helpful to Mark? The Bible doesn't tell us. That means that to come to a conclusion in your mind tonight is above your pay grade. You're not allowed to do it. You may have an opinion, but don't say it out loud. I'm not going to say mine out loud because, you know, really and truly, that's, that's way beyond me. But I want you to notice the positive thing that happens as a result of this disagreement. The positive thing that emerges is that from there being one team, Barnabas and Paul, there are now two teams that are off in different directions and they're doing the work of God. Effectively, there's Barnabas and Mark and there's Paul and this new fellow called Silas who joins. And Silas becomes a very effective missionary worker alongside Paul. The work is expanded. Now, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself the question, how come there were ten Presbyterian churches in downtown Philadelphia? I mean, it's not a very big place. We know it started with First Presbyterian. Whenever you call something first, I guess there's going to be a second. Somewhere down the line, they had a prophetic insight. Here we were, we were starting First Pres, right down there near the Delaware River when it started. And we do know that there was a division somewhere along the line in First Pres, and you got Second Pres out of, out of First Pres. There was a division. But the division led to the growth of First Pres and Second Pres. And uh, I don't know the rest of the story, but I think there were quite a few little divisions because Presbyterians could do that. Not as bad as Baptists do, mind you, but, but Presbyterians can do that too. But it leads to growth, so it's not all bad. I'm just saying that. That's the only thing I'm saying this evening from this part of the story. This unfortunate and unexpected argument led actually to the growth of the church and God can use, God can use his peculiar people. For his glory. That's not a, by the way, that's not permission to have arguments. But it's the fact that God can overrule them. Then secondly, there's an unexpected decision. Let's look at that. We're now coming to chapter 16 and to the bit we read, which has to do with Timothy. Because Paul picks up en route once he's got Silas and they're heading out to Derby uh, and Lystra. They pick up a new disciple there, a man called Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer but whose father was a Greek. In other words, he came from mixed marriage, came from a religiously mixed marriage. Somewhere along the line, either before they were married or probably after they were married, his mother and grandmother, Timothy's grandmother, had become Christians, and Timothy himself had become a Christian also. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. He wanted to add him in. Paul saw in Timothy uh, gifts and uh, godly graces that would be useful in the work of the kingdom. And Paul wanted Timothy to come with him. Later on, Paul calls Timothy a true child in the faith. Uh, Timothy was very different from Paul. Uh, 
Timothy is a pastor. We know that from the kind of things that, that Paul himself says about Timothy. For example, in, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, he talks about uh, Timothy who is genuinely concerned for people's welfare. Uh, he, he is concerned for the needs of, of the people, Timothy is. He, he, he is interests are the interests of Christ Jesus. He says all of those things about Timothy. Paul is a traveler. Timothy isn't. Timothy is a bit timid. Uh, he, he, generally speaking, works in a local church where Paul is always on the move, visiting church to church. Timothy serves a local church in one place, and then he goes and serves a local church in another place, and then he moves and he serves a local church for some time in another place. That was his ministry. He was a pastoral minister. Quite different from Paul. And apparently Paul gets on pretty well with Timothy and loves him and, and, and sees his effectiveness in the gospel. In other words, Paul is not in, unable to get on with people. In fact, wherever you look, Paul has loads of people that he's writing to and commending and sending greetings to and, and so on. Apparently Paul was the kind of person you would really feel affection for. Timothy had come to faith as a very young person. It wasn't one of those great razzmatazz conversions. He would have been one of those people like some of us who have to say that we can't remember a time when we didn't love the Lord Jesus. And I'm glad I'm not embarrassed to say that. Like Caesar Milan, the French Huguenot jurist and hymn writer, who once said, Some are awakened as a mother awakens her children from their sleep with a kiss. In a gentle way, God brings them to life. But there was one thing in which Timothy was irregular. Do you notice this? And it's quite a surprising thing. It's an unexpected thing. His mother was a Jewess. His father was a Greek, a non-Jew. And he had never, Timothy had never been circumcised as a Jew. Now he was the problem with this. Well, it wasn't a problem as far as the gospel is concerned. We know that. The whole of the previous chapter has been about the issue of circumcision as a basis for salvation. The big issue in chapter 15 is this. Do Gentiles have to become Jews in order to become Christians? And the answer was, no, Gentiles don't have to become Jews to become Christians. They can go straight from being Gentiles to being Christians by believing the gospel. But you get to chapter 16 here, and here is Paul taking this young man, Timothy, and having him circumcised. I just say this. It's one thing to be circumcised when you're a baby. It's a whole different ball game when you're circumcised as an adult. This was no joke for poor old Timothy. So why does Paul subject him to this? Is this random? Is Paul being completely out of character here? Is F.C. Bauer, the great 19th century German theologian, right when he says... The Paul of Acts and the Paul of the letters are two different people altogether. And he based that view on this incident. What was the problem? Well, the problem, of course, is that Timothy is joining Paul, who is an evangelist. He's a missionary. He's going into different locations. And wherever he goes, where does he go first? He goes to the synagogue. And what was the problem in the synagogue, reaching Jews for Jesus. 
then and now, what is the big problem? Well, the big problem is that if you're a Gentile, then you are the Goyim. You are one of the nations and you, you don't belong. You are, you're, out, you're out of the pack, really. If you are a Jew, on the other hand, they want you to be a card-carrying, law-abiding Jew. So as soon as they found out, you see, that Timothy's mother was a Jew, that meant he was a Jew, and if he had, was a Jew without having been circumcised, then he was violating the Abrahamic covenant, he was breaking the law of Moses, and that would be a major offense to the Jews that they were trying to reach with the gospel. So Paul makes a decision here. No one was saying to Timothy, you have to become a Jew in order to be a Christian. Paul was thinking to himself, we need to be, not have any barriers in reaching our Jewish friends for Christ. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Gentile, I became a Gentile. That was Paul's principle. So Paul had Timothy circumcised for pragmatic evangelistic reasons. He refused to have another man called Titus circumcised because the people were wanting him to circumcise him in order that he might become a Jew before becoming a Christian. He refused that. But here there is no such pressure on him. I think if there had been anybody in the church in uh, Lystra who had said to Paul, you need to circumcise Timothy because he's from Jewish background, he's professing Christ, but he's not right yet. I think Paul would never have had him circumcised. Because he just wouldn't do it just because you said so. He does it for pragmatic reasons in order to reach people for Christ. Now here's a question. The question is, when people turn from other religions to Christianity, uh, do they have the same kind of, do we have the same kind of uh, principle applied here as Paul applies to Jews? The answer is no, because Judaism is distinct from all these other religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and so on, because to the Jews, the Jews have the promises, they have the covenants, they gave us the Messiah, and in this period of time when the gospel is going first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, this issue of circumcision, actually, Paul says, is a matter of adiaphora. That is a word that means a thing indifferent. It actually had no value in and of itself any longer. Circumcision had been superseded by baptism as the mark of someone who belonged to the Israel of God. It was really only now a Jewish boundary marker. That's all it meant. And so Paul is saying, out of love for the Jews... And so as not to cause offense to those I'm trying to reach with the gospel, it doesn't matter if Timothy is circumcised. Martin Luther puts it like this. Paul is strong in faith and soft in love. John Newton said, Paul is like a reed that is waved here and there in non-essentials, but he is like an iron pillar in essentials. And that's what he's teaching us here. He himself says the same thing over and over again when he's applying the gospel and he's, he's applying Christian behavior and he says, in things that don't matter, don't make a fuss. I mean, really, if somebody has a problem, if somebody has a problem and you know they've got a problem, don't force them 
into your freedom. Don't impose your freedom on people who have a problem. If they've got a problem, it's their problem. They're the people who are weak in faith. But don't you who are strong in faith impose your freedom on those who are weak in faith. It's a principle that, that is at work. So here's, here's the issue. Chapter 15. The issue is salvation, and that is an issue of truth. In chapter 16, it's the issue of fellowship. It's an issue of Christian love. Well, we move on to another unexpected thing. And that is from verse 6 and following, there's an unexpected obstacle. So they go on their way, go through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, and we are told that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now here, they, here is God interrupting the plans of the apostles. They want to go around all these churches they visited before, and they have a plan. Their plan is that they will go to southwest towards the Aegean Sea southwest towards Ephesus, but they're forbidden to go there. They can't go southwest. So they've come up from southeast. They want to go southwest. They can't go there. So then they try to push upwards. They try to push up to the northeast, up towards Bithynia, near the Black Sea. You've got a picture of Asia Minor or Turkey in your mind. You can see the image here. They want to go there. And the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So they can't go southwest because the Spirit stops them. They can't go northeast because the Spirit blocks the way. We don't know how He blocked the way. Maybe there was a landslide. Maybe there was an earthquake. Maybe some trees were blocking the road. I don't know what it was. We're not told. It could have been as simple as that. But the Spirit stopped them. They just couldn't go where they want to go. It could have been prophetic word, physical, obstacle, whatever. We're not told. So we can't speculate. But I want you to notice that what we learn here is that these apostles are flexible. You try one way and you can't go, you try another way. You can't go that way, then you find some other way to go. It's, it's as easy as that. Guidance isn't hard. God puts roadblocks in your way. He stops you going down this way. You, you want to go that way. You think that's a good way to go. You try going that way. A roadblock appears. Well, what's that telling you? You go up to the roadblock and you push it. You kick it. You do what men do whenever their car stops on the road. They get out and they look at the car and it's not going and they kick the tires. It's never done anything yet, but that's what men do whenever their car stops. Have you ever noticed this? Car breaks down, your husband will get out the car, he'll walk around it once or twice, and then he'll kick the tire, as if kicking the tire is going to get the car going. Well, that's what you do with these roadblocks. You go up to the roadblocks and you shove them, you push them. I mean, look at this. I mean, this is dangerous. Sometimes I nearly fall over in front of you, right here. If I lean forward, this thing is in the way. The thing under this thing, however, is not going to move. We hope not for a while, not for many, many, many centuries. Bless them. What you do with roadblocks is you push them. If they don't move, you, you come to the conclusion, this is a roadblock. And what do you do? Well, you go somewhere else. That's what Paul is doing here in the story. So he can't go southwest. He can't go northeast. He's come from the southeast. There's only one other way to go. Where is it? It's northwest. So that's what they do. They set out towards Troas. And they get there and they stop. Because now they're at the sea again. They can't go any further. There they are in a seaside, in, a, in an ocean 
side town and, and they're waiting there. And we're told that a vision, in a vision, for Paul, a man from Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, we don't know anything about who this man of Macedonia is. All kinds of people theorize, was this Alexander the Great? Somebody thought it was. Somebody thinks it's Luke, that Luke is the man from Macedonia. We're just not told. If it was of any interest to us, we would have been told. But we're not told. Come over and help us. And when he'd seen the vision, they talked about it. That word that's used there in verse 10, concluding, suggests that they had got together in the morning, and Paul had told them about the vision that he had. And they discussed it. Dr. Luke, who is with them, had asked the question, Well, Paul, what did you eat last night before you went to bed? Was there a lot of cheese in what you ate? Because that will affect your, your dreams. You, you, maybe it was, oh, that's all it was. It wasn't a vision. It was a dream because you had too much cheese. They, they limited, eliminated that. And then they probed one or, one or two other questions. They, they argued about it and so on. And then they came to a conclusion. They came to a decision. They took the vision, they took the fact that here they were, all the other places had been blocked to them. They found themselves at Troas. Where do they go from Troas? There's the sea. Where are they to go? Well, just over the sea was Greece. And Macedonia is an area of Greece. So that figures. Let's go to Macedonia. Macedonia was famous. It was the home of Alexander the Great. Alexander, remember, built an empire at an accelerated pace. The Greek empire grew. And as a man in his 30s, Alexander wept in Persia because there were no more worlds to conquer. Now there was going to be a new empire going to Macedonia, the new empire that would not bring subjugation, but would bring salvation. That would proclaim a leader not like Alexander, but a leader who in weakness had brought salvation to men and women. A salvation of worldwide dimensions and of eternal duration. An unexpected obstacle, but it's overcome because of the gospel. There's a lesson there, I think, about being flexible in the work of the kingdom of God. Some people want us to be absolutely consistent and to know ahead of time how things are going to work out. You know, in church leadership and in church life, we do this all the time. We, we have an idea. We, we discuss the idea. We lift up the idea and so that everybody understands it. We say, this is what we want to do. And so we set out wanting to do this. And then there's a roadblock. And some people say, well, you were wrong to think about this. You were wrong to go in this direction. No, we weren't. We were trying something. My mother used to say this. She used to say, the man that never made a mistake never made anything. And in the church of Jesus Christ, we try things. They don't work. We try something else. Five years down the road, we may go back and try that thing that we tried before. And this time it might work or it might not. Flexibility is key in getting the gospel out to the world. Well, the last story here is the story of an unexpected conversion. So we set sail from Troas, 
And by the way, do you notice in the text there, verses 11 and 12, there's the addition of somebody else to the team. He's very subtly shown us. Do you see where he shows us? Who has, who has joined the team here for the first time? You can pick it out from the use of the little word, we. Not Scottish we, but this, the way it is here. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Luke is telling you, I was there. This is where I joined them. I was part of this part of the story. He's leaving his signature on the story, and you'll find him doing this from time to time in the story of the book of Acts. He, he may, by the way, also be leaving his signature. We can't be sure about this, but he may also be leaving his signature when he calls Philippi a leading city of the district of Macedonia, because it wasn't. And probably only somebody who came from there would like to think, that it was. Okay? So that, that is possible. But, but it doesn't matter if it's not, but, but it's an interesting observation. So they got to this place, Philippi, and they found no synagogue. This, so their, their, their kind of missional system was thrown into flux. What do you do when your whole project is to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles? You start with a synagogue and then you turn to the non-Jews. Well, here they get to a city of Philippi and there's no synagogue to start with. What do you do? Where do you go? And uh, they decided, well, there must be a place where people go to pray, especially people perhaps who've heard of Judaism. I mean, obviously there aren't enough Jews in, in Philippi to form uh, a synagogue. They needed, I think, uh, ten Jewish men in order to form a synagogue, and there weren't enough men. Well, maybe there are some women who are into Judaism. Let's... Go and look for them. Where would you look for them? Well, very often people go to the riverside and there they find quiet places where they can pray. So they made their way to the river. We supposed, we supposed that there was a place of prayer down by the riverside. Down by the riverside. And that's where they went and they met a woman named Lydia. Actually, this may not be her name. It may very well be that she is, was known as the Lydian woman, and that was her kind of brand name, and that she had a little company going on, and a little company was called the Lydian Woman. That's kind of interesting idea. I just discovered that this afternoon. One of the scholars had come up with this idea. They do come up with a lot of nonsense, but that might be a good idea. But what is important about Lydia, or the Lydian woman, is that she became a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said is an unexpected conversion. Out of the blue, in the middle of nowhere, with people who were not full Jews, here's a woman who was interested in the things of God. And as she listens to Paul preaching, God opens her heart. And that's always the way when someone becomes a Christian. God takes the initiative. He breaks through by his word. He breaks through the defenses of our mind. He, he penetrates into our heart. His word gets to places nothing else will reach. So, for example, in the book of Acts, it's God who gives repentance, chapter 11. God who opens a door of faith, chapter 14. God who appoints people to eternal life, chapter 13. The Lord himself who opens Lydia's heart, because salvation is from first to last the Lord's work. 
He shines light into our darkness. He speaks life into those who are dead in trespasses and sins. He brings about a new creation. He gives new birth. It's all of God. All the glory goes to God. Lydia is converted. And she is baptized. And her whole household or family as well. Now you'll find that last little phrase in the book of Acts several times. And usually in some quarters that little phrase is just overlooked. It's mentioned, but overlooked or understated or explained away. When as a boy I asked the question, what is this about? I was told that uh, obviously this family had no children in it except adult children who shared Lydia's, their mother's, faith. It doesn't say that, though, does it? It just says that Lydia and her household were baptized. They came to Christ, she came to Christ, and her family were baptized. The word for household is the word oikos, and a famous theologian called Oscar Kuhlman did a lot of work in the usage of this word, and he discovered that very often the word oikos was simply meant the family, and especially a family with younger children. Anything from infants all up, on up. So I would ask the question, well, does that mean then that children and infants may be baptized? And I was told, well, no, because we, aren't, we don't have any infants specified here. Therefore, that would be an argument from silence. And I asked the question, but isn't it an argument from silence on both sides? If you believe only believers are to be baptized, and you're saying it's very likely that all these people who were baptized became believers first before they were baptized, and that there are no children present, that is one possibility from silence. But the other possibility from silence is that the word that's used here, which refers to family and especially younger children, might suggest that Lydia and her entire family were baptized. I asked the question. I never got a really good answer. And I never came to a really good answer until it dawned on me one day, of course, that you can't take these household baptisms out of the book of Acts and look at them in a discreet, isolated way, as if, as if they stand alone in the text without a background. The background is the whole of the Scripture up until this point. The background to these texts goes right back to the very beginning of the Bible in which we discover there in, in Genesis, we discover that God has always worked, always worked through believers and their children. Cain killed Abel because Abel was a believer. God saved Noah and saved his family. God calls Abraham and gives a promise to Abraham and his family. God promises blessing, not only for you, but for the generations that follow you. When God was 
was giving a picture of what the church is in Israel. And he was saying, here is, here is Israel, a nation that is a picture of the holy nation, the church. People who came to faith, people who were part of Israel, were circumcised. That was the outward visible sign of belonging to the, the holy nation. And the boys were circumcised as a picture that the promise was being handed down from generation to generation. Not everybody in Israel belonged to Israel. Not everybody who was part of the church of Israel actually believed. Paul makes that very clear. The New Testament makes that very clear. Not everybody who belongs to Israel is of Israel. But nonetheless, the promise is for all those, for you and for your, for your children. This was carried on right throughout the Old Testament. When you come to the New Testament, you would expect this. You would expect that in the New Covenant, God would not be any less generous to His New Covenant people than He was to His Old Covenant people. You would not think that God would want to say to His New Covenant people, oh, from now on, from now on, salvation is totally individualistic. And I have no promises to make to you about your children, your family. And I'm not going to work anymore in family lines. I'm going to work with everybody on a strictly individualistic way. Now you would think that if something as dramatic as huge as that in terms of a change in the way God works was going to happen somewhere in the New Testament, he would have to tell us that. That is a huge change. But you don't find that change taking place. The New Testament doesn't have to argue that God works down the generations. The New Testament doesn't have to argue that the church, that God works in families because that's already been established as a principle. So Peter just gets up on the day of Pentecost and he casually says to people he's preaching to, now that the Messiah has come, you've got to believe in the Messiah. Now that the Messiah has come, circumcision doesn't count because circumcision was a good covenant sign in the old covenant period because it was only applied to boys because the Messiah was going to be a boy. It involved the shedding of blood because the Messiah was going to die. Now circumcision has run its course. It doesn't mean anything anymore because the Messiah has come. He shed his blood. He's died. What is he provided by his death? He's provided cleansing for sin by his death. Baptism is a great picture of that. And baptism you can apply to girls as well as boys. Baptism covers all of us. It's for The New Covenant is inclusive. Men and women, boys and girls, included within its promises. Peter stands up in the day of Pentecost and he says, right, this is a new era. Therefore, everybody's got to start from scratch. If you're a Jew, you've got to start from scratch. If you're a Gentile, start from scratch. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized. That's why in the book of Acts, most of the people are baptized as believers. is because this is the thing just starting up. But those who have families in the book of Acts, we find that not only is the believer baptized, but their family is baptized too. So I just gave you that little bit for free. That little bit about baptism at the end was just a kind of add-on in case you needed to be convinced. 
But when you come across these verses here, you have to put them somewhere. I think put them in the context of the entire Bible and it is the most easily understood thing that you can see that in, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, people uh, who are coming to faith are like these Gentiles who are coming to faith, are like, the, uh, are like our father Abraham who was a Gentile before he believed. And he believed first and then he was circumcised, his family. Because God gave him a promise. The promise is for you. Peter says in the day of Pentecost, it's for you and for your children and for as many as the Lord our God shall call. Well, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for these unexpected little incidents that happen that give us food for thought and give us a sense of the flexibility and movement of your Holy Spirit as he works in the world and works through people, people like us, people who do the wrong thing, people sometimes who do the wrong thing for the right reason, uh, people who strive to serve you and follow you but who trip and fall and need to be lifted up and restored, people who uh, have come ourselves to faith in the Lord Jesus and need help and encouragement to think that this promise is for us and for our families. Some of us who are here today, perhaps we didn't know that... Uh, Somewhere in the past, in our family tree, there's been someone who knew the Lord Jesus. And we are what we are today because they back then, perhaps it skipped a generation, perhaps a couple of generations, but they back then believed the promise of God that salvation would come to the generations after them. We pray for the generations after us. We thank you for Lydia and for her household. We thank you for us and the households to which we belong. We pray that grace would run like a river. In Jesus' name, amen.